This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Well, the Colts were, you know, when they first came in the league, they were sort of the underdog, and then all of a sudden, United starts coming along here. And, you know, Gino Marchetti and Artie Donovan and the legends of what the Colts were all about. I mean, it was uh, the Don Shinnick. Uh, you know, we had, in a, you know, with Unitas. I mean, what could you ask for? I mean, you had the greatest quarterback, one of the greatest quarterbacks ever played the game, I think. Uh, and we had, you know, Artie Donovan was the class act. I mean, he was he was a legend. I mean, when I first met him, I called him Mr. Donovan. I said, I can't wait to meet your son. <laughs> that, that didn't endear me too much to him. Uh, he was he was just a character, and Gino Marchetti was he was he was such so quick off the ball. Uh, it was unbelievable, and they had so many good players. And with Lenny, and, and you know, with Janitis and Dick Szymanski, and we had uh, Jim Mutchler, who was such a great tight end. Uh, you know, Bobby Boyd was a, one of the defensive back. Lenny Lyles was another guy that was just. You know, these were all really, really all pro guys, and it was it was just it was a fun time. It was. The thing that, that, that was so great about it was that the fans were such a part of the team. And the people lived and died with us. I mean, they really did. And they were the great fans. And, and uh, uh, we were blessed to have a, a, a management team that allowed us to do what we wanted to do with the fans. Colts made Baltimore big league. They predated the Orioles. And I, and I think that there was an early identification from the very beginning. Because Baltimore's got this giant chip on its shoulder. Always has, always will. And all of a sudden, we're big league too. We can look you in the eye, New York. Glory, tradition, pride, champions. All words that describe one of the greatest franchises in the NFL's history. You're either going to have to sell this franchise and have no money left and have nothing left for your family, or you're going to have to move. Think about the thousands of people that they had to lie to. It's unheard of. You couldn't, you couldn't get away with that now. There are teams that don't intend to move and don't want to move, uh, but they are put at a serious disadvantage, in a, and it's going to affect the game. I just don't think the people in Baltimore, maybe it's been the officials, just haven't come through. It was almost like a member of the family unexpectedly died on you. There's not too many teams out there that you couldn't lose. It was surprising even to us in the league when Baltimore Colts left. gigantically loud. You could tell a running first down from a passing first down. For me, it was the love of the game. I couldn't wait to get out. My family was such a huge old family, and I absolutely just loved Washington. I couldn't wait to get out there. I have no deal with Phoenix in the world. The sad part about it was he was in Phoenix a few days before negotiating the deal. You know, there are certain places you know, that are iconic, that, you know, those cities should have franchises. Baltimore should. And so it was surprising even to us in the league when Baltimore Colts left. 
I've never been so proud of my whole life to be connected with the Baltimore Colts. Start winning. It's infectious. This city had their child stolen from them. They were kidnapped and they got him back. The wounds of the Colts' departure were still very fresh here for some. The grief and yeah. the anguish that people felt that our had lost the Colts. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. On today's episode, I'm pleased to welcome Troy Lohman. Troy is the CEO of Bullet Point Properties and the director and producer of The Ghost of 33rd Street, a documentary that looks back at the impact the Baltimore Colts had on their dedicated fan base and the controversial franchise move to Indianapolis that left the city without an NFL team for 12 years. Troy's documentary is great for anyone that wants to learn more about what it was like for the citizens of Baltimore after their beloved Colts left. And I learned a lot both from viewing it and in my conversation with Troy, where we go deeper into the Colts' impact, legacy, and ultimate events that led to their departure. I've added a link to Bullet Point Properties' website where you can sign up and watch the film for free. And you can also click on the link in the description to the Facebook page where you can see clips that didn't make it into the film like the ones at the beginning of the episode with none other than Colts legend Tom Maddie. So go out, watch the film, and let me know what you think. With that said, thank you all for listening, and now enjoy the show. And we're off. Okay, Troy Loman, thank you for joining us. How are you? Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course, man. Did you get to watch any NFL yesterday? I did. I did. It was some really good games there. A couple surprises. Aaron Rodgers uh, playing really badly. And, uh, you know, a couple other um, some of these rookie quarterbacks look pretty good. I think the league's in good hands with some of these um, young quarterbacks. Yeah, I was really surprised, like how competitive the games were, especially now that they only have a few preseason games. You figure like some of them would be rusty. But yeah, the rookie quarterbacks like Zach Wilson. I got to see a little bit of him in, uh, against Carolina. That was a pretty good revenge game for Darnold. But yeah, some of the scores were just a little bizarre, like the uh, Jameis Winston having five touchdowns. I mean, that's incredible. Like on 145 yards passing, too. He's at yeah. That just shows you how good Sean Payton is as, as a coach. He's an offensive genius. So yeah, I, I was really surprised that the defenses stepped up. There, I mean, there was a lot of lower scoring games. Um, if you look at the around the league, Aaron, there's a lot of young quarterbacks here. So um, I think a lot of them need a little bit more seasoning. So I'm a I'm an Alabama fan, so the two of Mac matchup was really interesting to me. And I live in South Beach now, so Tua Waddle, a lot of the Bama players down there. So I'm a little partial to the Dolphins right now. Yeah, I was surprised at that game. Like Mac Jones, I saw a few good throws in the preseason. Um, and Tua last year, I thought he did okay. I didn't really know how he was going to progress in the second year, but I thought he made some really terrific throws yesterday. Yeah, he's really poised quarterback. Uh, a lot of people thought like, oh, you know, he had all the NFL quality receivers in college. But he's just got a lot of poise. He plays older than he is, and he's got big time, big game experience. So he's going to be good, especially in Belichick's system. So, How did you uh, become a Bama fan since you're from up north? Well, uh, interesting. When I was I was a seven year old kid, and um, I just was watching a Nebraska Alabama game, and um, 
I like Bryant with his hat and everything, you know, just a little kid. So I was always partial to Bama. And then my daughter ended up going to Alabama. So I went started, you know, going to all the games. And I've just been a fan since I was little. I mean, it's just one of those things. So they, they've, they've had dry spells before, too. But it's definitely rolling right now. Yeah, I uh, so for the past three years, I lived in Atlanta. I recently just moved back to Florida and I'm a Steeler fan. And there is a bar that they have called Smith's Old Bar. Mm-hmm. And on Sundays, it's a Steeler bar, but it's an Alabama bar on Saturdays. Right. And that place, no matter what the game was, it was just wall to wall packed. Even if they were playing a team like New Mexico, you just couldn't get a, a good spot to stand in. I mean, and even when I was up in um, I went to Pittsburgh one time for a game and they played. That's when Alabama played Joe Burrow and uh, LSU. Right. And yeah, it was it was surprising how well the Alabama fans travel well. I mean, there was like one LSU fans on one side and Bama on the other. Right. But yeah, I mean, they they travel really well, too. They got a lot of national fan bases, I guess. Yeah. You go to Tuscaloosa, you see some real loyalty there. Like yeah. it's everything to them. They don't have any pro teams down there. It's. It's all about Bama all year round, too. Like, they talk about Bama, you know, 365. So, yeah, I, I imagine it's kind of like a, like a small town in high school how they, or a small town in Texas, how they rely on their high school team for basically right. as their source of pride and entertainment. I can just imagine that being on steroids in a place like Alabama. Yeah. Well, you know, when you talk about pro teams, Steeler fans are pretty diehard, too. Like, they, they, Steeler fans, Green Bay fans – you know, um, yeah, I would throw New England in there too now. Yeah. So, yeah. are you from Pittsburgh? No, I'm from Florida originally, but okay. My uh, the first time I ever watched the game was the 2005 divisional when Jerome Bettis fumbled the ball at the one yard line, and Ben right. had to make that tackle. Yeah. So I figured after watching that game, you're pretty much in for the uh, in for the taking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I live in Miami now. That's where my film production company's based in Fort Lauderdale. Oh yeah, yeah. We've got we've got two films that are done: The Ghost, and I did one on my hometown called Love Letters to the Shore. We got a political documentary coming out next month. Uh, I got about four other projects that are in um, anywhere from pre-production to production right now. So, so let, let's go deeper into your background as a filmmaker. I mean, were you someone who grew up making films? Was it something that you do by trade? Did you take into um into the past time like recently what's your kind of history with it well uh you know i've always loved movies ever since i was a little sports and movies were the two things for me and i became a stockbroker and i was a stockbroker for a long time and i took over the company snm global holdings in 2015 the company was basically a shell um that i had bought out and I had to decide what I wanted to do with it. Did I want to go into medical field? Did I want to go into IT? Whatever. And I wanted to do something I was interested in. I wanted to go into the entertainment arts industry. So I've always been interested in art, uh, film, um, fashion. So the company is basically the major division bullet point films or bullet point properties is the biggest part of SNM. We also have other divisions in the MJ sector and such like that. But Bullet Point, and Bullet spelled like Bullet, the Steve McQueen movie. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm a huge Steve McQueen fan. So um, then what, you know, once I, I developed a, the film company, I said, then what do I want to do with this? And I tinkered around with some big budget films. We, we were uh, 
part of a couple MMA films and stuff like that. But I wanted to do something that meant something to me as stories that that resonated with me. And the first one that came to mind was the Colts leaving Baltimore. I, I felt like there was never any real closure for the fans with the story. Everybody knew about Ursay, but there was a 10 year gap there that Baltimore didn't have a team and a whole generation of fans. Basically they didn't become Redskin fans. They kind of wandered around watching games. And at the time I was in college and, um, you know, I was a Redskin fan when, when mm-hmm. I was, but I like the Colts too, because I, I was a big Burt Jones fan. But I saw my friends who were from Baltimore, and they were just lost on a Sunday afternoon. They didn't know what the, they weren't going to root for the Redskins. They hated them. The rivalry was huge between the two cities. I mean, they hate each other, and uh, they didn't really have a team to to root for. They, they didn't root for the Colts because they left, and uh, it was just a lost period for them. So there was never any closure about it. You know, the Ravens came in, but there was still no closure with the Colt thing. And I thought that I would examine that by um, interviewing a lot of the old Colts that were still around, you know, uh, maybe um, fans that grew up in that era. Also fans that grew up when there wasn't a team, you know, and get a a whole sense of how Baltimore still feels about the whole debacle. Yeah. And the interesting about the documentary, too, is how much archival footage that you incorporate into it. I'm curious because I see that you got some from uh, newscasts from local um, uh, Baltimore television stations. And I imagine some NFL films uh, also contribute to that. But did you also go out and look for like uh, like home videos of like Super 8 millimeters and stuff like that? What was the process like of kind of gathering and acquiring the footage? Yeah, I mean, the, my editor, Peter Ebanks, um, he was fantastic in finding what I wanted. I told him, I said, look, I don't want a lot of glossed over NFL footage. You know, uh, what I want to do is get some home movies, stuff that you can find on YouTube or not find anywhere. And he really dug in and got some footage that a lot of people were really impressed by. I was impressed. He got a lot of uh, just footage that didn't it's not doesn't belong to the nfl doesn't belong it's just people taking film footage that's how a lot of the footage was done back in the 50s and 60s i mean one of the things i was impressed with when you watch the movie Aaron, you, you probably know that there's that 91 year old doug eggers he, he was on the colts when unitas came in in the mid 50s and he had, tells a story about losing his teeth on his first nfl game and peter found a picture of him smiling with no teeth back in the fifties. He was shocked that it even existed. So I was real happy that we could put play set together. The footage that we got was more homespun. And that's what, that's the, the whole thing. It's not a glossed over production. And that's what Baltimore is anyway. It's a, it's a small, big city. And it has that feel and the culture like that to the town. Yeah, that's interesting because like as I'm, I've never been to Baltimore, and I've always have been kind of curious what exactly it's like. Is sometimes the only interpretation I've seen of Baltimore is like some of David Simon's work, but that's only like one part of the city. You know, there's obviously an entire other part that I haven't seen. Um, but it was interesting how you really tied in the history of Baltimore, kind of like Baltimore as an identity, and also how the Colts played into it. So for you, was this something that you you thought that the Colts were always synonymous with Baltimore? Like, were the two always, you know, hand in hand together for you? Or do you think that 
um, it's an image that's gradually has taken form, especially given the events that unfolded in recent years. Right. Um, yeah, Aaron, uh, you know, I grew up in the late seventies, eighties, right at the tail end of the Colts, but I still got a taste for what they were. And I remember when I was really little, my father, my uncle, my grandfather talking about the Colts, they were players unlike today where they make multi-millions and you never see them other than on the field or in the commercials. These um, players like Unitas and Maddie and Gino, they had restaurants and car dealerships and bowling alleys, and they interacted with the fans in the offseason. They were part, they were their neighbors. So when they played, it was their friends too. And um, it just had that feel that these are our guys and we're going to root for them no matter what. Luckily for Baltimore, between 1958 and I'd say 1978, in that 20 year period, they were the gold standard. You couldn't get another team that had, could match their record. And uh, so they won, they were loyal, and they just had a Baltimore flavor to them. All the players also were really loyal to the town. How, how do you think um, the relationship between the Colts? And the city, that camaraderie differs from, say, like Green Bay and the Packers or uh, Pittsburgh with the Steelers. I mean, do you think that there's maybe a, a unique relationship there that maybe some other smaller markets with successful teams can't replicate? Well, I think the Steelers do a pretty good job of having that feeling, too. You know, they're you know, it's a, a blue collar town that, you know, the, um, the team means a lot to them. They have that. They it resonates in Pittsburgh too. Same with Green Bay. There are other small towns that have that same feeling with Baltimore. The difference is Pittsburgh and Green Bay didn't have their teams ripped out from under them. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's the big difference. There's a few. I mean, Baltimore, Baltimore wasn't unique with the Colts, but there wasn't too many teams, too many cities that embraced their football team like Baltimore embraced the Colts. So when they left a big part of their identity left with them. And uh, a lot of the players also, uh, they didn't follow the Colts to Indianapolis. They stayed loyal to the town. That says a, speaks volumes to, you know, the loyalties of the players in the city. Yeah, didn't uh, Johnny Unitas at halftime walk out with the uh, Baltimore jersey? Yeah, yeah. When the, the Ravens came, yeah, when the Ravens came back in town, a lot, a lot of the old Colts showed up um had raven uh, had colt jerseys on and then showed the raven jersey uh that was really special and you know they the ravens have done fairly well bashadi and um and you know representing the colts you know and their legacy and they have a colt ring of honor at at the state at raven stadium so they've done pretty well but it's like anything else it's it's not quite the same. It's yeah. it, there was there, the lineage is, is broken, and the Ravens and Colts don't have a straight line lineage like a lot of teams do. Yeah, I think it is cool how I don't know if this is still the case, but anytime Indianapolis comes to Baltimore, yeah. it'll say Ravens, then it'll just say Indianapolis. It doesn't have the actual team name on there. Is that still a thing? Yeah, I, I, I tell you, Aaron, the one thing that really stuck with people that really gnawed them is the Colt, the horseshoe. And the Colt mm. name, if the Ravens, if the Colts had given up the name and let Baltimore have it back when the Ravens came and they were the Baltimore Colts, I probably would have never done this. It would have been a 10-year blip. They got the Colts back, sort of like what the Browns did. They got mm. their name. 
So um, you know, basically by the Colts being in another town, it's like, you know, you always have like girlfriends living with somebody else and it never ends. So it's still a sticking point, not quite as bad as it used to be. But for the old timers, it's still as bad when they see that horseshoe in another town. And it would have been an easy fix for the RSA to give them the name, call them the Indianapolis Racers or something, just start fresh and when the type of man he was. Do you think the kind of uh, blowback that uh, the NFL received, or I don't know if the NFL really could have done anything about it, but whenever they were reinstituting, uh, reestablishing the Cleveland franchise, that they were definitely going to be the Browns. There was no finding another name. Do you think that they had learned from the situation with Baltimore and Indianapolis? I think so, Aaron. Uh, at the time, I just thought that the NFL, when they lost the Colts, the NFL really didn't show Baltimore, the city of Baltimore, any respect. Um, they, they, you know, when they, the time that they had two new franchises, they went to Charlotte and Jacksonville, even though Baltimore laid over them as a better city. So they got, you know, if it wasn't for the Browns coming to Baltimore, Baltimore still might not have a, a, a team. So I thought the NFL showed a lot of disrespect to the city, its place in NFL history. I mean, Aaron, you arguably the Colts in Baltimore were involved in the two biggest games in NFL history. The 58 game that you know was the advent of the television era for football. And then Super Bowl three, which basically cemented the merger of the two leagues. And, and, and it's the modern NFL um, became of that. So I just don't think that they got the props that they probably should have. And now before the the Colts had come of age in the 50s, you make, you bring up in your documentary that there was actually a franchise before the NFL had came and established the Colts franchise that was also called the Baltimore Colts of the All-America Football Conference. Now, did the NFL, I don't know how successful that franchise was. I know you mentioned that the Miami Seahawks had relocated because they weren't doing well in Miami. Was this a, a sort of blueprint for the NFL to move into Baltimore for the first time? I mean, did they see something there that they thought that this would be a good market for a team? Or was this something that they thought that maybe we can experiment with. We don't know how it's going to go, but we should at least try it for ourselves. Yeah, Aaron, I think the reason that the Colts came to Baltimore is because they were promised Memorial Stadium. Memorial Stadium was built in 1954. So okay. the, it's, and it's, at the time, it, it's, it's funny. It's very ironic that they got the Colts because of Memorial Stadium. Then they lost the Colts basically because of the same reason. Memorial Stadium had become antiquated. So I think the NFL was looking in the 50s, you know, people were looking for the new stadiums and with Memorial Stadium there, the Colts were a natural fit. And then they were successful. Uh, they sold out. Uh, Rosenblum was a pretty good owner. He had great Hall of Fame coaches, Hall of Fame players. So they prospered in the 50s and 60s, you know, all the way up until the early 70s. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, when you talk about Johnny Unitas, when he first got there, how he wasn't the all-star player that everybody recognizes him as. And can, can you speak to how he became such a great player for the organization and, and NFL history, and in particular, how actually Otto Graham contributed to his success? Yeah, I mean, uh, Unitas came in from Louisville and went to the Steelers and got cut. 
And then he came to Baltimore and he was just having troubles. Like his, his mechanics were off, his drop back, everything. So he made a 10 cent call to Otto Graham, you know, and Graham told him to throw, you know, basically put more air under the ball. And what you, what came of it was United's classic drop back, you know, bullet pass that he had. And basically if something clicked and then all of a sudden he was basically the best quarterback in the, in the league. And it was all because another hall of fame quarterback helped him out. Yeah, that's a, uh, it's interesting to see kind of like that pass out from generation to generation in a way, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, obviously Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady have two completely different distinct styles, but it's always cool to see like a little bit of a passing of a torch either, even if it's just two like words of encouragement in a way. Right. You know, and, and and that happens today. Some of these quarterbacks get mentored, but, you know, Rogers got mentored by, um, you know, Brett. And um, it, it happens a lot. That time, though, it was a Hall of Fame quarterback mentoring another future Hall of Fame quarterback. And then, you know, the lineage continued. Yeah. So. Now, when it comes to Carol Rosenblum, obviously he had a lot of success whenever he brought the franchise to Baltimore. You know, they win a couple NFL championship games. They do win a Super Bowl and Super Bowl five after they get upset in Super Bowl three. What was his main incentive for wanting to trade franchises with um, Bob Ursay to get out to Los Angeles? Because obviously the guy had a lot of attractions and glamour and publicity and, you know, he knew the Kennedys had Hollywood connections, but was there anything else that just kind of put him over the edge with Baltimore where he wanted to um, relocate? Yeah, Aaron, when I was doing the documentary, one thing that I, I saw that I could have done a whole documentary on was him. He was mm-hmm. a very interesting guy in a lot of ways. Uh, he had connections with the Kennedys, but also a little bit with the underworld too, but his wife was a driving force in everything he did. She was all glamour, wanted to live in Hollywood. And so when the time came, you know, Ursay was an East Coast guy and he had just bought the Rams. It didn't fit him. Rosenblum saw a chance to move out West, own a glamour franchise. So the switch was a natural switch. So, um, Unfortunately for Baltimore, they got to short in on the owners. Rosenblum was a pretty good owner because he let the coaches coach where Ursay really got involved in a way where he was detrimental and how how well the, the, the franchise was run. Did you think Super Bowl three had anything to do with maybe him wanting to go somewhere and start fresh? Because even though they won the Super Bowl, you hear a lot of calls that say it still doesn't mean the same thing. Like the loss of Super Bowl three is greater than the joy of Super Bowl of winning Super Bowl five. So do you think that had anything to do with it where maybe he felt like there was a little bit of a, a strain between the Colts and Baltimore for not being able to close the deal on the Jets in that Super Bowl? Well, I think with Rosenblum, there's a couple of reasons. That's a good question, Aaron. But I think a couple reasons why Rosenblum wanted to trade out was – Two main reasons, other than his wife wanting to go to Hollywood. One, the base base of their great team, Unitas, Maddie, um, you know, all their defense was getting older. They were starting to get older, and they were going to have to rebuild. On top of that, um, Baltimore, and this is where I have to get come to the defense of Rosenblum and Ursay. Baltimore was steadfast and not helping out, putting public funds in a private 
um, stadium at the time. That the 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 uh, government, the local government at the time, just really rebuked it. And Rosenblum saw that, saw that he probably was not going to get any kind of like upgrades or new stadium from the city of Baltimore. He was forward thinking. So what he did is he basically said, this might be the time to leave because there's storm, there's storm clouds ahead of this. And he was right. I mean, through the seventies, Memorial Stadium was starting to be antiquated. It was starting to break down. It didn't, you know, it got covered up by the Burt Jones teams that were real exciting. So you still had a lot of people come into a, bro- you know, a, a broken down stadium. And I love Memorial Stadium. I got a lot of childhood memories there. But it was starting to be an old stadium. So um, I think he, he, yeah, he saw it was at its high point and he wanted to trade out. What do you think was the stadium that kind of made everyone have higher expectations for stadiums? Well, do you know, the Colts, um, you know, they played Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Three Rivers, Riverfront, all those 70s AstroTurf stadiums that were at the time state-of-the-art. So all these NFL teams are getting these new stadiums, and here's Baltimore still a memorial stadium. So it just wasn't attractive for the long haul. And you know, basically they weren't getting any, any help. Like there was many times, Aaron, in the seventies, the city could have stepped up and just did some uh, renovations to the stadium, put some money in and locked Ursay in for a 10 or 20 um, year period. But they just said, well, no. And I think what Baltimore, what the Baltimore city government failed to recognize, they just felt the Colts would never leave. No, they didn't have to do it. The Colts were going to stay there and they were wrong. Yeah, I definitely want to get to that point. But before we go there, um, you mentioned when Bob Ursay comes that obviously there's some players that have to be traded away. Um, there, there is a little bit of a rebuilding era, but it's not that bad. There's only like a couple of years where they don't make the playoffs and then they're right back in the thick of it with, you know, Burt Jones obviously being a big part of that. So was the relationship in the beginning between the city of Baltimore and with Ursay maybe a little more mutually respectable than what it ultimately descended into? Or was it still a situation where they didn't really trust him as far as they could throw him? Well, Aaron, I think that the Colts' mid-70s success um, hid a lot of that. You know, when you're winning, everything's fine. The stadium's full. Nobody's really complaining about anything. When it started to really show was about 78. Jones got hurt. The Colts started to be really bad, finally, um, where they really had to rebuild. So now the stadium, now you had a bad team and you didn't have fans not showing up. Now the pressure was on. This is where Ursay and the city really came to loggerheads. And I think that was the real problem right there. And was this starting to, like, obviously when you look back things in the aftermath, it's going to seem apparent. Um, But when you look at newspaper articles that were published during that time, was there a lot of talk going on about Ursay's tumultuous relationship with the city? Was there a lot that was made of it or was this something that no one really paid attention to because they just wanted to focus on the game itself? I think, I think at the time people figured that they would work it out, but they were procrastinating about it. They were like, okay, they'll work it out. It'll be fine. And then by the early eighties, Aaron, it was really too late. Ursay basically had started talking to other cities who had way better packages 
And basically the bird had basically flown at that point. And now they started scrambling to get it done. And now it was too late. It was like the relationship had broken and there was nothing. I really think, and this is a personal opinion. I really think that when Elway didn't come here, when he got drafted, that was the end of it. That was the last straw. And I think that broke because if Elway had come in, I think he would have resurrected the franchise. I think Baltimore, they would have come together. uh, And I think they may have stayed, but um, instead, you know, the last couple of years of the Colts is really forgettable. You know, they went winless in 1982, you know, a little about 500 their last season. They were really a mediocre team with a bad stadium and really a bad owner. Now, was their decline sort of a similar situation, what it was before, where players were aging, or was it bad draft selections? What was kind of the uh, – how did it go from being a competitive team to just really dropping off so quickly? Well, you know, Jones was – Burt Jones was the catalyst. I mean, okay. he carried those mid-'70s teams. What happened with him is by 77, 78, he started to get hurt. The 78 season, he got hurt. When Jones got hurt – uh, the team wasn't really – he's somebody who could have carried the team to win in seasons all by himself. So when they brought in another quarterback after him, you know, they had a lot of players. Finally, after a 20-year run, it's inevitable that a franchise is going to have to rebuild. They got lucky the first time, and it only had, it took about a year. But this time it looked like it was going to be a longer rebuild. Baltimore probably would have stuck in there, but, um, you know – you had the inevitable decline in attendance. Now you're in the eighties. Now money really matters in the NFL and Baltimore's way behind the eight ball. You know, Ursay could have done a lot more to try to help out. I just think he was a horrible owner, but you gotta, you gotta be balanced here and Baltimore waited too long to get this done. So, and then, then at that point it was too late. You know, there were so many teams, so many cities, Aaron, in the early eighties that wanted, look at what Al Davis and the Raiders, like mm-hmm. everybody was wanting teams. So the owners had leverage with these cities, which they didn't used to not have that leverage. Yeah. That kind of goes into the next question in terms of Baltimore's like waiting game. I mean, do you think that this was a situation where they wanted to invest, but didn't for one reason or another, or was it a situation where they really didn't want to invest in the stadium or the fan experience or making it more enjoyable for players or more, more attractive, I should say, because of the NFL stance on franchise relocation until ultimately, you know, the um, Supreme court would intervene in favor of like Al Davis and um, the move to Los Angeles. Yeah. I, look, I think the city of Baltimore, Aaron, just dropped the ball in the seventies and they, they were behind the times you know, they were living off the goodwill of the fans and the goodwill of the city um, that they didn't really have to do anything. By the time they woke up and lost the Colts, they, they, um, they initiated the Maryland stadium authority that basically saved the Orioles and built the two stadiums downtown. They finally said, look, we got to get with the times. And what they did is they got rid of Memorial Stadium, built Camden Yards, which was state-of-the-art baseball stadium, and they had the money to build a new stadium for any team that would come into town. Now, if they had just done that five years earlier, 
the Colts would have stayed. It would have been a no-brainer. Ursay would have got his stadium. Even though he wasn't the greatest owner in the world, he got what he wanted, and the Colts would have stayed here. Was he looking for a brand-new stadium, or did he just want to expand upon Memorial Stadium? Well, I think all owners would want a new stadium. I think eventually he would have won a one. But early mm-hmm. on, his um, his demands were pretty modest. He just wanted some renovations to the stadium, really renovations that needed to be done. And uh, he just didn't get the help. So, and then, you know, he brought, he exasperated the situation with, you know, showing up drunk at, um, at, at uh, interviews and like calling out the mayor and such like that. He was just not a very pleasant person. So it was adversarial. And caught in the middle of this with the Colts and the fans, which I feel Baltimore fans are some of the best fans in the world. They are loyal. They would have stayed with them. Uh, and they were just caught in the middle. I, I think it's funny you bring up Bob's drinking because there was a uh, there was a book I read a few years ago. It's called The League by David Harris, which basically documents sort of like the internal turmoil with the NFL ownership group. And uh, Georgia Rosenblum was in a, some sort of dispute, and she said that she was talking to Bob Ursay about something. And someone said, well, we all know that's crap because she doesn't get up till noon. And by the time – by that time, he's drunk already. So <laughs> there's no, there's nothing getting done there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that was well known. Like if you didn't get Ursay early enough, he was already drunk. And he was <laughs> a bad drunk. Like yeah, angry he did guy. it right – you know, publicly bad drunk. And he was just – it seemed like he was a tormented man. And – um I don't know. I don't know. By the time the early, like, you know, they tried to fix it near the end, but it was too late. He had already talked to Phoenix, Indianapolis, and ended up getting it. He was gone. They were not going to get this team back. So that's, what, that's how it went. But when it comes to the the public officials and the you know the city council, the city government, was it a unanimous decision that they didn't want to invest in the stadium or in Ursay, or was this sort of like a split fraction that was going on within city council? Because I, I would imagine there had to be someone that had the foresight to see that this could eventually backfire in a big way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, late, everybody was on board to do it. But, you know, I got to say in the late 70s, early 80s, definitely in the mid 70s, there was just a a lethargy to even doing anything. It was just, oh, let's put it off, put it off. It's almost like you got a girlfriend that you kind of treat bad or Mm -hmm. you just take for advantage, you know, you take for granted. Then she's getting ready to leave and then you start to try to get your act together and it's too late. It's, right. I, I think it's a similar thing. So, yeah, I mean, not the fans, but the 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 city, I think, could have done a lot in re, you know in, in retrospect to to save the Colts. They just were behind the times. That the NFL, they weren't keeping up with the NFL economics, and it cost them. Do you remember where you were whenever the um, overnight move happened? Yeah, I mean. I was in college, probably hungover, <laughs> but um, I remember getting on the, uh, seeing it on the news, and it's one of the one of those things that you remember. You're just shocked, like, no, that can't be. And you, those visuals of the Mayflower trucks, and at the time it was a late winter, it was March, and you just can't believe it. Like, it's something that you thought might happen, but not really. It's never, 
Colts are never going to leave. And then they're going to Indianapolis, and, like, you're like, what? And, like, everybody was in shock. Nobody knew what to do. And it was just a real loss. Like, the Orioles are popular in Baltimore, but there was nothing like the Colts. Like, through the 70s, 60s, 70s, this was a Colt town. You know, and the Orioles were good, too, but it was just a football town and all gone in a flash. Do you think that the sentiment would have been different if it wasn't done in such a clandestine way? Because they left, what, three o'clock in the morning? Is that what it was? Like, do you you think maybe if it was done in broad daylight, not even if Bob Ursay just comes out and says, hey, we're getting the hell out of here, suck it up. I don't want to hear it. Do you think even if he just left at broad daylight in front of everyone to see that it would have been not as much animosity towards him or the entire situation? Or do you think it was all just doomed to collapse the way it was? Well, I mean, look, if he could have done it much better and it would have been a little better, wouldn't it, what really would have healed the town is if he left a name. That was a yeah. big thing. Everybody's like, oh, it's just a name. No, that horseshoe and that name was Baltimore. Like they, that was a big, big stick. When that name left with it and he didn't change that name, that was, that was, you can't come back from that. I went over to the station and they told me to get a light kit and go out to Owens Mills to the Colt complex. And it was really like watching a relative die. We were at the gate, we set up, we're there all night. And to see those trucks come out and we knew it was over. And it's funny, all the checks, the severance checks, were made out from a bank in Indianapolis. So the fix was in for months. It was in. You know, moving here for law school and becoming part of the life of the city, I mean, it was, you, you couldn't really walk down the street without bumping into the grief and yeah. the anguish that people felt at our having lost the Colts and such a storied and, you know, legendary team. They didn't just take our team in the worst way possible out of respect for the city of Baltimore. That was very disrespectful to the to the people that have been given patronage all these years. They took our uniforms, they took our name, everything. Yeah. They took everything. Why didn't they just name them something else? I saw my dad die, cry twice in his life. When his father died and and when the Colts left. Our hearts were broken. The whole town's hearts were broken. It hurt the players. Guys didn't want to go out to Indianapolis. You know, it was just, it was a tough time for the Baltimore, and they didn't deserve that. Why don't Baltimore cold people stay here? So we had no team. Uh, we had no history. We had nothing. Everything was ripped out. We were just guys that were NFL retired players for 12 years until a franchise came back. And whenever people would drive by that stadium, uh, especially once mm-hmm. the new uh, Camden Yards was built for the Orioles, I mean, it was a constant reminder of the loss, of the ghosts, of all of the good memories, but also the sense that, hey, a really important part of our story, a reflection of us at our best, mm-hmm. was that Unitas Colts team. And boy, Aaron, this town hated that guy. I, there's not much more hate that you could have for a guy in a city than that guy. I know that I know things are divisive in the world right now, but that was some real hatred going on at that point. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been – I think, too, like when I, I can't really imagine that happening, I guess, for the Steelers, I guess. But you kind of bring up later on in your uh, in the documentary, like, you know, there's very few teams that you think it could happen to. But the possibility is always there. 
And I think that almost adds like a, a sort of personal jab to the citizens too, you know, because, you know, you have a problem with city government, that's one thing, but the majority of the people in Baltimore can't do anything to stop it. So it's like, if you take the name as well, it's almost like a, just like a personal jab at the city, especially if you're Bob Ursay, what did you actually do with the name anyway? Right. And Aaron, uh, when the Ravens came in, they were trying to pick a name. They, they went to the Colts and say, look, we'll buy your name, the name off you, give you money. Mm-hmm. And what Ursay, I think his son at that point, had some astronomical amount of money that they wanted, like twenty five million, which was a lot, or so. It was an enormous amount of money. It's basically saying we're not going to give you the name. So they just thumbed their nose at the city. And the Ursays were here for a decade. It was the right thing to do. You could have easily switched it. Indianapolis fans wouldn't have cared at the beginning because it would have been like they had a new team, you know. And they got a lot of grief too, and they were just getting a team. Um, from another city, sort of like how, and what's another, I, I, I love the twist in this story too, Aaron, the the Baltimore got a team the same way they lost the team, right. Cleveland's team. And there's a lot of people that um, in town that really didn't like the way that went. Like they didn't want to take another t- city's team because they know how it felt. So yeah, well, I remember watching the um, America's Game documentary that the NFL Network shows, and it was about the 2006 Colts. And Peyton Manning was talking about that whenever they went to Baltimore to play in that divisional game where people are yelling about, you know, how you, you stole the Colts name or whatever. And he's like, I'm just a kid. Like, what are you getting mad at me for? Or I was just a kid when that happened. But, yeah, it just shows how that kind of passes on generationally, too. People just never can seem to let it go. Yeah, I mean it, it. It was it. It was a real stick. I mean, a real thorn for Baltimore fans. So, um, you know, I was hoping that the documentary would put some kind of closure to people of a certain age about the Colts, and also, you know, uh, the younger fans, the Raven fans, that you know, the, the Colt legacy is fading here mm-hmm. in Baltimore. You know, they could look back and say, well, you know, we do have a football legacy. You know, it, we it didn't start in 1996. You know, we had a great football team from my then my dad and grandfather's time too. So I wanted to make sure that the younger fans got to see that also that their grandfather or their father felt the same way about the Colts that they feel about the Ravens. Is there not even like a museum outside of the stadium for the Colts at all? Or is that yeah. really just anything? No, in the stadium? no, no, no. But Bashadi does fairly well. He's got a statue of Unitas right next mm-hmm. to the Ravens. They got a ring of honor. And then over at the um, warehouse and stuff, they got Colt memorabilia and stuff like that. So there's a presence there. They invite the Colts back. You know, Stan White was announcer. So they've embraced them. But it's just weird. You know, Stan White said in the documentary, um, I don't know if you picked it up, that it's just not the same. They're like the, they're like the stepkid in the family, that everybody loves them, but they're still the stepkid. So when Colts go back, it's just not a straight line lineage. It never will be, but they've done the best they can to try to connect them, connect the two. And whenever you mentioned this earlier, how the Redskins were being broadcasted after the departure of the Colts. And I thought it was interesting how you bring up that sort of rivalry, how D.C. and Baltimore just hated one another. I'm kind of curious. I mean, can you kind of express what a Baltimore, what a Baltimore native would think of D.C. and vice versa that kind of contributes to that rivalry? Yeah, and and some of the fan segments I had in the documentary, Aaron, 
I had Baltimore in like Baltimore fans are diehard people in Baltimore, Havre de Grace, you know, Glen Burnie, true Baltimore towns, Dundalk. And then I had some that were like maybe on the fringes, like Glenn Denning, you know, was more of a DC guy. And like, mm-hmm. it's just so different right in the same state. It's like the Hatfields and McCoys. There is a line drawn where DC fans kind of dismiss Baltimore fans as beneath them. And Baltimore fans just hate DC fans because they feel like they they're uppity. So they're Mm -hmm. blue collar against white collar there. It's just, they hate each other. And it's still to this day, a Baltimore fan will never root for the skins or the Washington team. And, um, you know, a lot of it in, in the documentary, Jack King cook wanted the whole area. He wanted to capture the area and he did for a while in the late eighties, you know, mid, you know, um, towns in between DC and Baltimore, like Columbia, Laurel, you know, uh, even, uh, close, clo- closing in on Baltimore became Redskin fans. Um, but as soon as the Ravens came back, they, 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 that line went all the way back. And you know, now, you know, with the red, with the Washington team being, not really good over the last couple of decades. The Ravens kind of have done the opposite. They're knocking on the door, taking all the Washington fans. So, and I remember, I remember you brought this up in the documentary that he squashed an earlier attempt at possibly bringing a franchise to Baltimore uh, before the Ravens. What exactly did he do to kind of thwart that effort? Well, he's done. He did a lot of things. One thing is when the two franchises in ninety. Four were announced. Okay, he did everything he could in the m- meetings to make sure none went to Baltimore. He had deals with the NFL, NFL like TV contracts, such like that. So he basically blocked it. You know, and I think the NFL went along with it. They give Jacksonville one of those teams, Aaron. It wasn't even close. The package that Jacksonville had, as opposed to Baltimore, not even close. So they got blocked and the Redskins were a big part. And, you know, the NFL was also a big part of it. And it, like this just fueled the anger more in Baltimore about being dismissed and, you know, not respected. So um, I think to this day, even fans later on have a distaste for, you know, the NFL and definitely the Redskins. You know, what's what about uh, Jacksonville? Do you think that sentiment is still pretty, pretty bitter today? I don't think they hold anything against Jacksonville or Charlotte. Like they were just trying to get a team. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, 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 the whole process um, they were bitter about. But I think that's that's really dissipated because they got the Ravens. And now, you know, there's a lot of people don't even remember the Ravens came from Cleveland. If you're a 22 year old fan, you just the Ravens have always been here. And you don't remember that. It just seems like it's ancient history. So um, the funny thing is the stadium thing, you know, last night I was watching the Bears and Rams and they got that $2 billion stadium, which is just gleaming and mm-hmm. state of the art. All these state, all these um, cities are on notice <laughs> that that's the bar. Now they're going to have to step up here. And, you know, um, Raven stadium is now starting to be pretty old itself. You know, it's maybe almost 30 years old, um, 25 years old. So at some point, they're going to come up against this again, and they're going to have to step up. 
I think they will do that, but we'll see. We'll see if history will repeat itself at some point. I, I, do you ever do you ever feel or maybe not feel, but do you ever worry sometimes if like this whole super stadium game can kind of detract from the charm a little bit of football? I do. I, I think I've been to these stadiums and they're great, but it's almost like it, it's just too sanitized. Yeah. It, you're not that close. Look, when you were at Memorial Stadium and you were in that end zone part, it was like you were on the field. You you were with that right there with the, the players. Um, you're just real close to the action. Um, and you feel like you're in a football game. If it's 40, 30 degrees outside, you're out there just like the, the players and you, you're toughing it out. It's I, I just feel you lost something there. You gain something, but you lose a lot too. Yeah, well, it's like whenever I, whenever I would go to Pittsburgh and then you just kind of see, especially if it's like a four o'clock game, you know, the transition into night, it to me just adds to the energy and to the drama of the game. And you know, even like at a, a Tampa Bay Stadium with the Bucks, you know, it's the same thing. It's a good it's a really good statement. It's wide open. You know, you're susceptible to the weather. I kind of feel like the ruggedness of the game kind of loses its edge when it becomes a little too glamorous, especially with stadiums. So I, I guess I'm probably in the minority with that. But I think there's a certain charm to having football played outdoors and not necessarily even in bad weather, but just having that authentic feel to it, you know, something that's not sheltered. Yeah. Another thing, Aaron, is with the rising prices, these stadiums are cost so much that it costs a ton to go a game now. So you lose some of your maybe blue collar fans that add a lot of flavor and a lot, you know, a lot of knowledge, a lot of uh, noise to the stadium. It becomes too, I don't know, prim and proper. Um, You just lose something there, I think, I I believe. Yeah, well, Peter King, I remember he was on Charlie Rose years ago, and he actually brought this up saying that, uh, you know, there is a concern that the NFL has to deal with at some point where, like, are you losing the middle class fan? And I, I just think, you know, the more what you just said rings true, you know, the more you kind of bring in these super stadiums and these big, you know, mega screens and uh, box seats, you're just going to kind of price out a big portion of your fan base, which I guess maybe, you know, with how great the television quality is nowadays, maybe some don't care. Maybe they would just rather watch it at home, you know, so uh, I guess there's a little bit of a trade off there. But that's another reason I liked I had so much footage in the documentary. I want people to see the dirt. The mud, the cold, yeah. you know, the um, the players like gritting it out, the fans doing the same thing. It's just a, an era um, gone by that needs to be. I just wanted to, you know, have it so you could watch it and you know keep it forever. Yeah, definitely. Now, by the time 1994 rolls around, that's when the CFL comes. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Now, but by, by, by that. By that point, was this like uh, was the fan base majority of people who were becoming football fans? They were the younger generation. They just wanted to embrace some sort of football and maybe were too young to remember. Or do you think it was still mainly people who had been born and raised on the Colts, witnessed what had happened in 84 and just wanted something to get behind and cheer for some sort of football to cheer for? I think that I think that was the case. I look. I, I take them probably a minority opinion of this. I mean, the Stallions were great. They won a couple championships here, but it was CFL. It was football light, and mm-hmm. I think it was just a snack that just didn't fill you up. And I think these players want. I mean, these fans wanted something. Wanted it. It was in Memorial Stadium. It was football. 
Um, but it wasn't NFL football. And they, I, I feel after they didn't get one of those franchises, I felt like they were fans were starting to give up. You started to see fans root for other teams, you know, maybe their grandfather liked the Dolphins or their girlfriend is, was from like Chicago. So they root for the Bears or they go root for the 49ers who were good at the time. Never the Redskins, though. But they would have this mere, you know, hodgepodge of teams that if you went to a Baltimore bar right around 1993, it would just be fans either just watching football because they love football or having some obscure liking of another team, which the Stallions brought that back to Baltimore. It still wasn't quite the same. It had it took the Ravens to really bring people back in force. And that even took a couple of years. It took oh, a couple really? years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At first, they were playing the Memorial Stadium. And that's why I called it Ghosts of 33rd Street. Because when the Ravens played there initially, mm-hmm. um, you want me to wait to, to that ring, ring here there? Or yeah, no? you can go. You can keep going. Okay. Right. So I called it the Ghosts of 33rd Street because when the Ravens came in and played in 96, the stadium wasn't going to be ready for a couple of years. So they played a Memorial Stadium. So when they came there, I just felt that the ghosts of that place were swirling all around, you know, the Colts, people were thinking of the Colts, not the Ravens. You know, where are the Colts? I'm in Memorial Stadium. Where's Unitas? Where's Jones? Where's that horseshoe? So I I felt the ghosts of 33rd Street were strong. It dissipated over the years, but was very strong there at first. And um, I think it took the new stadium before the Ravens really got their own identity. But I think what it really took, Aaron – is somebody who was maybe in their 30s, in the 90s, and just couldn't embrace the Ravens. When their kids started liking the Ravens, then they started to bond in like they did with their dads, and you started to have a history there. So, Yeah, there, there's two points I want to make to that, and you kind of touched on it with like a 22-year-old fan now who may not recognize that there was even uh, a franchise relocation to Baltimore from Cleveland, that there's a a franchise. I mean, do do you think that the irony of that situation by the time it actually happened in 96 was kind of lost on a big part of the Baltimore fan base or was everyone still pretty self-aware at that point, even if they hadn't lived it, what it kind of meant? Because obviously in the documentary, you have people who say like, it kind of sucks the way it did happen, the way that we did get a franchise, but still, I mean, this is what we've wanted. So now we're going to take a roll with it. And, you know, to people of Cleveland, we get your pain, but don't be mad at us. Yeah. I'll tell you, Aaron, what made it really easier is the Ursae, Modell, the owner of the Browns, was like night and day, the situations. He was a really good man. He did everything he could to stay in Cleveland. Cleveland basically dismissed him. No one blamed him for leaving. Like, he gave him every opportunity, told him he was going to leave if they didn't do this, 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 bent over backwards for him. They still didn't do it. And then when they built the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and wouldn't even upgrade the stadium, he goes, that's the end of it. And they left. The Browns, obviously, Cleveland was mad, just like Baltimore was. But I don't even think the Cleveland fans were as mad because they saw that the guy tried to do everything he could, where Ursay basically just pulled the rug out and lied right, you know, right till the end. So um, I don't. I, there was a degree of um, Baltimore fans that didn't like the way it went down, but the 
the situation being what it was, I think it was a lot softer. Whenever they did move the Browns to Baltimore and rename them the Ravens, was there still like a pocket of the Baltimore population that still wasn't going to root for any team that wasn't the Colts? I mean, were they, I, I don't know if anybody was still holding out for the idea that they could get a franchise and have it named the Colts again to keep that continuity. But was there anybody that just said, I'm, I'm done with the NFL at this point? Yeah, no, there was a lot of, especially older people and people overall just said, well, I'm done. Like the Colts were my team. They don't exist anymore. Uh, yeah, I'm done with the NFL, especially after not getting the, the, the new franchises. And then, you know, on top of it, they took a team, Two, no matter how it happened, he still took another city's team. There was a degree of people that left. I don't know if they left for good. I think after a couple of years, the Ravens probably started to grow on them a little bit. So the majority of them probably came back. I think when the Ravens won the Super Bowl in 2000, it brought the city back together. And then, you know, the Ravens have been a pretty model franchise. They got a great owner in Bashadi. Mm-hmm one of the yeah. best in the NFL. They've been uh, they, like the Colts. They rarely have a bad team. They, they, they've they had a 20-year stretch where they're almost always good. You know, they had L- Hall of Fame players like Lewis and Reed. They mm-hmm. carried the day for a decade. They went one, two Super Bowls. And um, they model the Colts in a lot of ways. They're just not the Colts. But, the, you know, to, to a 20-year-old, they are the Colts. Yeah, I mean, do you this may be like kind of a false equivalency, but I mean, do you think that the Ravens kind of speak or as influential to this generation as the Colts were to their respective generation? And yeah. maybe it's maybe it's a little unfair because you had two one was spanned two decades, the other one I guess you can kind of divide up into two if you were, but you don't think it really has any comparison? No. No, I'll tell you why too. It's just the world has changed. Back then, if you were a ten year old kid the Colts were everything to you that you, you know, there wasn't social media. There wasn't all this stuff, streaming, all this stuff. You Now that today you have, it's so diluted. I'm not saying a fan of the Ravens that you're 22, that you're not a real fan, but you're not as committed as a 22 year old fan in 1975 or 1965 to the Colts. And the players are different. The players were accessible back then you know, you could go and see Johnny Unitas at a Christmas party or Maddie at a bar and you could buy him a beer. They buy you a beer like these people were like your friends. So it's not the same. And it, 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 it's not the fans fault now. It's that the world has changed and it's yeah. not it's not as intimate. It's not as committed um, as it was back then. It's, a, it's an era that's lost. Yeah, I, I love reading some of the old vintage books in the 70s, like um, Three Bricks Shy of a Load, where the journalist follows um, a team for a season. And with Roy Blunt Jr., when they follow the 74 Steelers or the 73 Steelers, it's crazy to think how you know, they would just go out to normal neighborhood bars and just talk. And you would have fans telling them what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. It, it's kind of weird. I guess Hard Knocks in some ways has tried to re- replicate that, but you just can't because – you, you yeah. lose that divide. I actually, when I was living in Atlanta, I had a friend who went to school up in Wisconsin um, or a, a, a friend I 
I was at a friend's party and I met this guy who was a bartender up in Wisconsin. And he said that one time he met uh, Brett Favre and the Vikings whenever they it was 2009 when he came back to Lambeau for the first time. But, you know, you you buy out the bar for the night so no one comes and bothers you. So it, it kind of feels like, yeah, there is that divide that I don't think would be prevalent, you know, four or five decades ago. Right. It, it's, it, you know, now you have the players have entourages. They, yeah, they rent out whole bars. You don't even see them. Like you, yeah. you can tweet at them, but that's impersonal. And, you know, everybody does that. So back then you could have been a, a 20, 25 year old go um, bowling at Johnny United's bowling alley. He's mm-hmm. probably there. And he's the nicest. He was the nicest man. I, I actually met him once in an airport when he was older, just a couple of years before he died. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he, nobody's really bothering him. Nobody knew who he was. And I don't usually really go up to people that are famous. Mm-hmm. I just think it's not the right thing to do. Right. But I, I just had to go up to him and say, look, you know, you were one of my heroes. I know you've heard that before. And he was as nice as you could he could possibly be. When I was doing these interviews with Maddie and Laird and Edgars and Volk, they were just as nice and friendly and accommodating as you could possibly imagine. It's just because of, of the era they grew up in or played in. And um, they appreciated the fans. Almost everybody in the interviews said that the fans meant a lot to them and still do. Who was the most surprising to interview for you? Uh, I would have to say, and he's not a famous cult, was Edgar's. He, when we sat down, he had just turned 90. Mm-hmm. He was in pretty good shape. You know, you, you, some of the older football f- players you feel might not be in great shape. Sharp, his stories were really funny. There was a lot of stories that couldn't make the Facebook page. I mean, uh, couldn't make the movie, but we put them on our Facebook page. He just had these great stories about Amici and Unitas and Donovan that were gold. And, he, you know, he was funny, engaging. Um, and you really got a sense of how football was back in the 50s and 60s about they did it for the love of the game. They barely got paid anything. And um, it was just a different era. So I think he was my favorite interview. I, I, would like to, I always liked Tom Maddy, and he was really good. But they all were really good. In, in, in some of the sportscasters, pretty iconic in Baltimore, sat yeah. down. And everybody wanted to talk about it. It was something that everybody wants to talk about the Colts and what happened. It's almost cathartic to talk about what happened and try to figure it out. And in the end, I think what we said, it wasn't Baltimore. It wasn't the fans or the, you know, wasn't the fans fault or the players fault. It was a combination of a changing NFL and really bad ownership that really swept the Colts out of here. And, and the, the city lost their identity for it. Yeah, I can I can see that. Uh, one last question I want to ask about Baltimore is, you and you kind of alluded to this earlier. If you were going to make the case that the Baltimore Colts are the most influential franchise in the history of the NFL, how would you make that case? Uh, that's real easy. First of all, I think they were in the two most important games, like I said before, mm-hmm. the 1958 game. You know, the NFL was basically provincial at that time, really not nationally popular. But when they played the Giants on the, in that championship game on TV, it became a TV sport. It, they, it showed that and football was tailor-made for TV. So that, that was the advent of the big-time TV NFL. And then the Colts were overwhelming favorites in Super Bowl III. Like, they couldn't lose, Aaron. 
And when Namath came in there and beat them, it showed, you know, remember the first two Super Bowls, the NFL had obliterated the AFL. People were like, the AFL just can't match up. So if the Colts had went in there and blown them out 40 to nothing, the AFL might have just been relegated to a second, like the ABA might have been relegated to a second division um, sports league. Mm -hmm. They might have picked up a couple teams, but it wouldn't have been the merger of the modern NFL. So I think those two, um, I think um, they're all over popular culture. I mean, you know, the Barry Levinson movie Diner is Mm -hmm. about, is really, the cult theme is really popular in there. And um, I think with Unitas and the toughness of the 10 Hall of Famers they had, they personify, maybe along with Lombardi's Packers, the early days, the golden era of NFL, 50s and 60s. If you had to pick two teams in that stretch that personified the NFL, it would be the Colts, Unitas' Colts, and Lombardi's Packers. So, and then in the 70s, they were pretty good. Um, I just feel in that 20-year stretch, that horseshoe meant quality football and and quality fans. Absolutely. Well said. Do you want to tell people where they can uh, watch the documentary? Yeah, Aaron. Uh, they, we have a streaming service now called um, www.bulletpointproperties.com. If you sign up for with your email on the site, you can see all our movies for free. So you can see the cult movie and anything else we're doing. Um, Also, um, you can buy it. You can get the DVD or Blu-ray if you wanted. You would just leave a message um, on the S&M site and uh, we would accommodate you. So, yeah, go. If you sign up on that, Aaron, uh, you could just go watch it as many times as you want. And there's there's other things, uh, Facebook pages on there. I had done like 10 hours of quality shooting. All I had to get it down to an hour, right? So there's a lot of um, outtakes of things that all these players said that if you – and it's on the site. You could go in, see the clips, and get a little bit more deep dive into what these players felt. Would you ever do like another – like an extended cut down the road? Um, maybe. I, I think we covered it pretty well. I, you know, I, when I did it, I said – I think I said what I was going to say – if I was going to do anything else, it would probably have to be um, with the Ravens. And that doesn't interest me as much as the Colts. I, I give a lot of love to the Colts. I think mm-hmm. it stands alone. Um, I'm pretty satisfied with it. Yeah, I had a lot of fun watching it. I actually watched it through the uh, subscription. That's what I signed up for anybody who's listening. That's the best way, in my opinion, to do it. But, yeah, Troy, I'm glad you took the time to come on, man. I really enjoyed the documentary. You had a lot of great footage, a lot of great insights, too. Some of the information I didn't know in depth and really kind of put everything into context. So I'm glad you took the time, and I really encourage everybody to go out and watch it. Yeah, I appreciate it, Aaron. It's good to talk to another football fan like you, and um, I hope all your listeners uh, enjoy the movie. All right. I appreciate it, man. Take care. Thanks.